Welcome to the official Cell Talks podcast brought to you by the Conference on English Leadership, or CEL. CEL is a collaborative, dynamic, discussion-based forum for literacy leaders organized under the National Council of Teachers of English, also known as NCTE. Every year and in every episode, we honor conversations around text, speakers, and big ideas. We believe it's essential for leaders to maintain and move conversations. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you for subscribing and sharing our Cell Talks podcast. I am Josh Flores, your host for season one. Each episode was recorded live at the 2018 Cell Annual Conference in Houston, Texas, and features speakers, keynotes, and members of CEL, the Conference on English Leadership. We hope our conversations ignite and support conversations with your colleagues at your schools or wherever you may be listening to this. It's a great PLC tool if you want to introduce something different to your PLCs. I think it's a great support tool for that to start conversations that maybe you are already having or want to have. And uh, we hope that you find all sorts of unique ways to use these podcast episodes. It's chock full of information. I had a lot of fun uh, just talking shop about our profession with professionals (laughs) this year. And I look forward to continuing (laughs) this podcast series. Speaking of sharing and continuing conversations, if you would like to know more about CEL, you can find us on the Twitter at at NCTE underscore CEL. Or you can search for the hashtag CellChat, C-E-L-C-H-A-T, and you'll find our members using that hashtag and sharing and having conversations. You can also visit NCTE.org, the NCTE main page, and find us under the Groups tab. Here is where you can get all the information and get prepared for our 2019 Fall Conference. It's happening in November 24th through the 26th in Baltimore, Maryland. And get this, our theme this year, creating opportunity, leadership to ignite movements and momentum. I'm excited. So, hope you enjoy that. And I hope you enjoyed this inaugural podcast episode. Please don't forget to subscribe and share with a teacher friend that you love. And give us some feedback. Keep the conversation going with us, too. Engage with us on the Twitter. So, thanks again. And enjoy this episode of Cell Talks. I had a lot of fruit and not enough pastries. Not enough pastries. Well, they had lots of pastries left over. I'm sorry I didn't grab more. Well, I felt like it would be rude to go get another one when I was listening to the keynotes, but I probably oh, should have gone to get one. That's so funny because I was thinking the same thing. Like if we had, <laughs> we should have just gotten up together. I know. Mm-hmm. Well, if I'd seen, well, yeah, if I'd seen you go, then I, that's the problem of sitting in the front. Right. That when you get up in the front... Everybody sees you. And it's so ridiculous. Now they're going to be like, oh, that pig. <laughs> You'd be like, oh, I've been waiting for somebody to make it's this like, entryway for oh, me good. to go too. Yeah, it's like, oh, good. I wanted one too. <laughs> Bring me two. <laughs> <laughs> All right, perfect. I think it's working. So thanks for being here. Welcome to the Cell Podcast. Oh, thanks, Josh. Thank you for having Live us. Live from Houston, Texas at Cell 18. Woohoo! Can we just go around and just introduce yourselves, please? Sure. I'm Emily Meixner. I'm an associate professor of English and the coordinator of the secondary English education program at the College of New Jersey in Ewing, New Jersey. And I am Rachel Scupp. I am an eighth grade English teacher in West Windsor, New Jersey at Grover Middle School. And how do y'all know each other? Emily was my professor during a teacher prep program, and now she and I, can I say this, we're colleagues. Yes, absolutely. Oh, good. We co-teach together in my classroom in West Windsor. 
You co-teach. Co-teaching is, a, you know, it's something we just spoke about with Matt is a really, it's hard to find someone that you really um, are comfortable with doing that. You can be vulnerable with, but you also just have that natural flow, that kind of similar energy. So you're not stepping on each other's toes or getting on each other's nerves. Like what do y'all have in common that help y'all or what is it that you don't have in common that helps y'all be successful co-teachers? I think that um, since Rachel went through the program that I coordinate, I mean, she has a sense of who I am kind of as a teacher um, and where I come from and kind of what I hope to see in terms of best practices with most classrooms. Um, so I think because we knew each other and she was familiar kind of with where I was coming from um, and I knew how she was as a teacher, having seen her as a student and then kind of watched her professionally, I felt like, and we're friends, so I felt like it would be in some ways an organic collaboration. Um, I think also in the process of being in the classroom together, we can feed off of each other's energies, like just in that little conversation flip, like as soon as she paused, I was like, oh, I have an idea and just kind of interject. And that's how we, we co-teach. I think for the most part is we kind of feed off of each other's energies and are conscious and present about what the other is doing. I also think that we both bring our own expertise to the table. So Emily, in connection to the unit that we're specifically talking about that we co-teach is definitely the theory behind everything we're doing. She has these theoretical lenses that she's an expert in. She knows about how this practice should look. And I'm kind of the one putting it in place with my eighth graders, Mm -hmm. having taught eighth grade for the past six years. Yeah, and a lot great. of that came from from her instruction, so it's pretty cool. She's yeah, practice, it's wonderful because the I'll say I have this idea. Do you think it'll work? And Rachel will say yes, or she'll say no, or I'll show her something and she'll say, oh, it needs to look like this because this is how it would work with eighth graders. Um, yeah, so there are moments I think when we lead, and I think that there are moments when we watch and observe each other. And it's so far, it's been really, it's been really wonderful. So you're really important, Rachel, because you know we all have ideas, but we need someone to help us implement them at some point. And you have the guinea pig eighth graders that we can go and play with, right? Yes. And it's it's pretty fun. And I think uh-huh. for this journey that she and I have been on with, with Emily, I was the one who I think was pushing a lot for this to happen, whereas Emily was a little nervous. Like I and Really? Yeah. At first, I I had, um, and this had just come out of a conversation about something Emily had wanted to do about getting into classrooms. And I volunteered multiple times, like, pick me, my my kids would do it. And I I think at first, being a realist, if you don't mind me kind of giving you that title, and I'm totally an idealist, um, Emily was like, well, we have to go through some hoops. I can't just come in and start taking over your room. (laughs) And I was like, well, why not? Let's just, you know, ask permission, ask for forgiveness (laughs) instead of asking for permission. And Rachel and I had presented a lot, actually, before we started collaborating on this instructional project. And so we had a lot of experience in conference presentations, which in some ways is similar to what you see or do in a classroom. definitely. So we had a lot of experience presenting with each other at conferences, and I think also that helped shape the way in which um, we were working with each other when it finally came time for me to step foot into Rachel's eighth grade classroom. So what is the unit that you're co-teaching right now? 
Can you describe that? So I had mentioned to Rachel a couple of years ago, actually, it was at a CEL that we started having this conversation. And I had said to her that I was interested in developing middle-level curriculum that focused specifically on LGBTQ youth. Um, I had just taken a sabbatical where I was reading a lot of LGBTQI literature because I teach courses I teach methods courses, but I also teach courses in children's and young adult literature, and I have a special interest in LGBTQIA. And so I had mentioned to Rachel that I was thinking about developing curriculum, and I knew that there was a little bit happening at the high school level, but there really wasn't much happening with middle schoolers. Um, and so I was really specifically interested in thinking about how um, some of the theoretical lenses I was using in some of the college courses that I was teaching could be made eighth grade or middle school friendly and how there were these wonderful LGBTQ books that were being published for middle school aged children um, and how that might, like how all that stuff might come together and be productive um, and we might be able to build some curriculum around it. And so I'd been thinking about it and reading about it and thinking more about it and I just mentioned to Rachel that I hadn't found a site. I hadn't found a teacher to work with and that's when Rachel started raising her hand and I was like, um, I don't know. Uh, and, and the beauty uh, is, is that I am really fortunate to be able to teach a human rights curriculum. I can teach social justice through literature. And so uh, to me, this was a no-brainer. And I was just like, oh, come in. Let's just do this. We'll just add in these texts. And, of course, Emily was no, like. And I did want to do it. <laughs> And then I really got to do it. And so it was, it was like one of those ideas where you have, you know, one of those moments where you have what you think is going to be a great idea. And then all of a sudden someone wants you to do it. And then you have to figure out whether or not it is really a great idea. And so thankfully, Rachel provided the space um, and the instructional room for us to collaborate and put this unit together and implement it. And we've been teaching it now for the last two years. Yeah. So two years. Yeah. yeah. The, the really cool thing is like this conversation, I think, happened when we were at Atlanta. Yep, I think, uh-huh. and it was just kind of a ah, I yeah, was there. Two, right yeah. in two thousand sixteen. Okay. Right, so that was like the planning. Last year mm-hmm. was like the birthing of this curriculum as a pilot, and then this year we're very fortunate to have had it adopted by the entire district, and now it's out there toddling around with all my colleagues, where they're now teaching this across the eighth grade, eighth grade district wide. Okay. Yeah, and they've been tremendously receptive to it, which has been. Super Super exciting because it's one thing, you know, to try and do something and to not see a lot of kind of both administrative support but also local support from the teachers in the district. But Rachel's teachers and Rachel's administration have been totally on board. That's fantastic. Yeah, you definitely when you see a good idea, you implement it. You know it works. You want there to be interest in it. So. First of all, I want to know what's your favorite book since you said you took that sabbatical and read a lot of the literature. Ah. Do you have a favorite that you recommend to get people started who aren't familiar with the genre? I think one of my current favorite middle grade books is um, Ivy Aberdeen's Letter to the World. It's this wonderful story about this middle school girl whose family and um, well, their home is decimated in a tornado. And so they oh. end up kind of having to move into a local bed and breakfast. But um, one of the things in the book that happens is that in the in the chaos of all this, Ivy, Ivy loses a, a notebook in which she's been kind of expressing herself in art and words and coming to terms with who she is and who she likes, and it goes missing. And so the book is about trying to find that notebook and trying to find herself and trying to come out um, and learning more about herself and her family and her friends. It's really heartwarming and it's wonderful. It's not a book that we have in our unit, but it's a book that I would highly recommend. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. Do you have a favorite? 
I do. I think my favorite is Lillian Duncan by Donna Gephardt. Mm -hmm. And Lillian Duncan is one of my favorites because it has a dual perspective, one in the voice of Lily and one in the voice of Duncan. And in that text, you have a transgender girl. So you're introduced to this new world of talking about transgender youth. And you have a character in Duncan who suffers from bipolar disorder. And so they both have these struggles. And so there's great conversation talking about mental illness, really good conversation talking about transgender youth. Both of them have their own closets and their challenges. And I I really love that text because it is this entryway to view some some topics that some could say are sticky situations with such humanity. And we see this connection to a family who's trying to kind of wrap their brains and systems around this notion of transgender. And then this family who's struggling with this mental illness that is running in their family and how they deal with that. And it's really a beautiful text. And the students love it. They love this book. Yeah. You know, I, you said you went looking for this curriculum. You didn't mm-hmm. find it, and so you created it, and you practiced it, and now it's like it's going. Mm-hmm. So where do people find it? Is, can, is this something that others can... So we've been presenting on it um, at uh-huh. NCTE and at NerdCamp New Jersey. Um, we've been talking about it here in Cell for the last couple of years. Um, we blogged a little bit about it on the CEO blog. Um, Rachel's students actually collaborated with us on a reflection about the unit for the Nerdy Book Club blog, so you can hear their voices there. And we're starting to write about it. Um, so Rachel and I are you know, planning to put some articles out there in the next coming year and we're just looking for you know venues and and we want to share the curriculum with teachers which is why we're here at the conference showing what we're doing and talking about the books and sort of sharing our process and it's been neat and in sessions that haven't even been ours there's been moments in which I've been able to interject this knowledge about our our curricular unit and have talked to like teacher celebrities about what we're doing and and we're hoping to eventually create this curricular document uh-huh. uh, wherever that will be housed. So if anyone's listening who would like to pick it up, we are willing to write for you. But spread the word. I know there's interest out there. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I feel the same way. And, uh-huh. and it's just been really wonderful to kind of been, be in a good place and um, have these connections. I mean, even recently I was talking to Emily about a possibility of bringing this to Montessori schools in Princeton through some interest about teachers wanting to teach this curriculum but not feeling comfortable mm-hmm. and needing an avenue and I feel that the curriculum we've developed is, is very in a sense user friendly mm-hmm. and adaptable because it's dealing with close reading strategies using fantastic ideas while reading these LGBTQ texts I mean this is truly a life changing curriculum I know uh, speaking from all the research everything all the speakers we heard at NCTE and CEL and, you know, speaking from my own personal experience, being a minority, it's rough navigating adolescence when you don't see yourselves in media or whatever's thrown at you in school. And it's and when you do finally find that one book or something yeah. to grasp onto, which for me, uh, honestly, the, um, the two things I grasped onto as a child that were really impactful for me was, one, Aladdin because finally there's a brown guy and then uh, the Indian in the cupboard because, well, well, Indian, that eh, close enough, you know, but I never right. found that real Mexican connection. And I can't imagine how this curriculum must be um, just 
so life-changing uh, for some students out there. Well, it's been interesting because one of the things that we asked the students to do at the end of the unit, the first time that we taught it, was to consider how they could take some of the ideas that they were learning about and mobilize them. Um, so the kids decided to act in a variety of ways. Some of them put up bulletin boards in the school um, that provided information about terminology, about some of these critical lenses, about how to respond um, to homophobic behavior. And some of the kids developed some curriculum that they thought would be appropriate for younger students. And some of the students wrote proposals for a GSA at Rachel's school, which they hadn't had because it needed to be something that students asked for and no one had asked for it. And so a number of groups in, stu in Rachel's classes created formal proposals to put in place a GSA at her school, which they now have. And, and it's very and it's very active. They, they actually have it. They, yep. do. they actually have it. They do. Mm -hmm. It was almost immediate. As soon as the students created these letters of proposal to the principal, to the superintendent, the GSA was f created, and it has gone through uh, a couple of changes, which is great it, in great ways. So one, last year was just for eighth grade because they had to figure out how to find a meeting time in which students can kind of come to it. And I think they th severely underestimated the number of students who would be interested. So it was just eighth grade. Now it is all three grade levels. They meet bi-weekly after school. There's about... 35 kids who will show up to every meeting. They've even written a proposal to create gender-neutral restrooms, where in our school we have teacher restrooms that are single stall, and for whatever reason, when the planning of the school, they have one that's for men, one that's for women, and as teachers, we've always used them as gender-neutral because you have like two seconds to go to the bathroom in between, and whatever one's open, you go in. Mm -hmm. Well, the kids wrote a proposal to get more gender-neutral restrooms in place. So... The administration acted, ripped down all of those placards differentiating between men and women in the single stall no restrooms. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty extravagant, and wow. they're going to be assigning one to start just to see how it works for students to use as gender-neutral restrooms. They're going to create placards that illustrate the gender-neutralness of those spaces. And it's just amazing that I have so much support in that school, or we all have so much support in that school to kind of put these no ideas kidding. into action. No kidding. Can you give them another shout-out real quick? What's, what's <laughs> yeah, thank you to my administrators and teacher leaders who are allowing us to do this good work for inclusion and for acceptance in our community. Mm -hmm. And the students are on board, and they're incredibly articulate about the need for this kind of inclusion. And one of the things that, that always strikes me, I mean, in the two years that we've been doing this, is how hungry kids are for vocabulary that they can use to talk about these issues, um, exemplars of how to talk about these issues, information um, that that they want to know. They have, they have such interesting, thoughtful things to say. Um, and, you know, talking about heteronormativity, they feel it, they understand it, they see it. This just gives them lang a language and an opportunity to talk about things that they're already thinking about. And so they've been, the kids have been amazing. Kids have been just amazing. They have. And the beauty is that we give them this language for systems that they've been observing but not realizing could be detrimental, like heteronormativity. Uh -huh. And we'll go out into the world. There's one story that Emily likes to tell about a student who asked her mom to take her to Target, not for shopping, just to observe heteronormative structures 
in a space in which she was walking around saying, like, why are all of these girl clothes pink? Right. And what are girl clothes anyway? Right. And where are the toys organized in this way? Well, they changed that, right? Shout out to Target. Didn't they switch the the gender bias in the toy section? I thought they did. I think the gender bias has been switched in the toy section. But the clothes clothes are very much heteronormative in terms of the right, and that's true in almost any shopping space you go into yeah. right that, and there's oftentimes like a physical demarcation that separates the boy clothes from the girl clothes yeah. and you have to walk across it right and so yeah it's interesting to me that and the kids are noticing things and things that they're reading they're thinking about other books that they're reading um, they're thinking about um, movies that they're seeing and and Chris Lehman was talking about his Netflix queue and what's recommended to him and the kids are noticing things like like that, like why is that being recommended to me? Why is this being recommended just for girls and not boys? And so, so the unit offers them a space to talk about those issues as well as things about gender identity and sexual wow. orientation as well. But it seems like they took it to like the next level, and they're noticing all these underlying structures in place that they presumably don't have any control over. Mm-hmm. That's really man. This is a that's great. <laughs> yeah, it's kudos really... to both of you. Thank you very much. I, I I guess I should bring it back around to this co-teaching aspect though. Like, have you? done a lot of co-teaching in the past? I have not done a lot of co-teaching in the past. I think because I'm in a, um, I teach at a college, I've invited people into my classroom to be speakers, Sure, but I haven't cultivated opportunities in which I've been co-teaching with faculty or with former students. I feel like I've invited, like I said, I've invited faculty back, I've invited former students back to to share what they know, but it's never been in a co-teaching situation. So this has been really new for me. And even when I taught um, high school, I didn't do very much co-teaching. So this has been, yeah, this has been a growing experience, I think, for me. See, I feel like I relate a lot to you, but Rachel, I feel like you're really good at being a very charismatic extrovert. So have you done a lot of successful co-teaching in the past? Because you just, you jumped right on to this opportunity. I, I did. I have done some co-teaching in the past. I wouldn't say that all of it has been, what was the phrase that you had used? That successful? successful. Uh-huh. And not that it hasn't been, has been unsuccessful, but I, I've worked with um, inclusion teachers. I am currently teaching with an ESL teacher, and it is successful in the sense that we function really well in the space together. I think the issue, and this is something that a lot of teachers would probably nod their heads to, is in order to be successful co-teachers, you have to have the space and the time to collaborate, to figure out how to function together. And I know that, just to be totally honest, I have not done that in order to be a successful co-teacher with my other colleagues, like my ESL component or with my inclusion teacher, to make sure that we are collaborating so we can collaboratively teach Mm-hmm. I think co-teaching in those other spaces, unfortunately, have looked like I'm teaching. My colleague will step in and kind of like do what she needs to do. Um, and I'm using the pronoun she because both of them identify as female. Okay, uh, okay. My two co-teachers. Uh, do what she needs to do in order to make sure that the population that she is specifically there for, although they're all our kids, are getting what they need instead of us collaborating in a space outside of that room and then coming in and doing the work like I do with Emily. So I would say the success is we feed off of each other's energies, my other co-teachers and I really well, Uh but I should probably take more of the time to collaborate. Well, and it's time consuming too, because I'm thinking about when we started working on this curriculum and, and we got approval from your administrator to do it, 
um, I mean, it requires it requires work, right? So there are documents I need to share with Rachel, and we need to do some brainstorming around text that we want to use. And then when we actually start designing how the flow of the, the unit is going to go, I mean, that takes time. And there were many... You know, days when we were texting each other, and we had you know multiple Google, Google chats, Google chats, like <laughs> yeah. Google Hangout sessions at night after dinner. And you know, Rachel actually lives about a mile from me, and so you know, there would be times when I would drive over to her house, or she would come over to our house. And I mean, it's t- it's time consuming. And in the meantime, you know, she's trying to do her job, and I'm trying to do my job. And and so I think. I think if people want to do this kind of work, right, they need the time to think through it. They need the time to plan it. And then when you're enacting it, because there's two of you, it's it's constant communication about, well, how do you want to do this? Well, what about tomorrow? We thought about doing that, but what about... And if you don't commit yourself to that... Mm-hmm. It can be very. I think it can be very difficult. So structurally, it's just. I think it's. I think it's difficult in the way that schools are currently set up. You just don't have that kind of common planning time unless you make it. Make it. Mm-hmm. Well, so I think that's really interesting because time is makes it really hard to co-teach. And I've never liked co-teaching. I don't like co-presenting. I just don't like having to worry about someone else's feelings. Until I found that I have. Uh, I've had a lot of success uh, co-teaching, co-presenting with someone from the higher ed faculty. Like once I found like some, I'm fortunate enough to run with a lot of higher ed professionals uh, from Oklahoma. And um, one in particular was very, very much still concerned about high school secondary curriculum. And that's my specialty. And so we would nerd out on that quite a bit. And, uh, and well, not to say that what the other higher ed folks did was bad, but you know, most higher ed is most concerned about higher ed like that one I'm worried about my students and the teachers I'm training and getting articles out <laughs> to publish which is all good good to consider too but this one was like I want to know what's happening at the high school level and I want to be in there and that helps me be a better professor to these new teachers coming in and so I found that that was helpful because even though my time would be restricted um, her time like she has office hours she has a little bit more control of that time so And in some days, I have more control of that time. So that almost helps out with that time issue. But if I was in the classroom, I'm on the same schedule with everybody around me. Mm -hmm. And that makes it hard to collaborate on a life-changing event like this. I want to say kudos to you for still being so involved and concerned at the secondary level. Because I do think that um, there are some teachers that believe that higher ed is just a separate entity. And there is that higher, t- that ivory tower mm-hmm. concept, and it makes them almost scared to ever approach professors. And then some higher ed are just too busy to ever think to go down and approach teachers. I say right. down, that sounds like bad, but um, you know, one of my professors would say like, you don't, you shouldn't say he doesn't like even the term higher ed because it makes it seem like we're this above level concept. Yeah, I, well, I teach methods courses, so almost all of my students are going to be t- teachers. The majority of them are going to be middle school and high school teachers. And so I'm in schools a lot because I'm doing observations every semester as they're implementing their units and developing lessons and having clinical experiences. But there's something to be said for you know being present and teaching in a school, too. And so I'm really grateful. And I think one of you know, my hesitations, my personal hesitations, was that I hadn't taught in my own classroom. I hadn't been a teacher um, 
in a middle school or high school in a very long time. And so when Rachel said, you know, do you want to co-teach with me? I mean, part of it for me was about, can I, I can talk about this and I can share stuff with my method students, but can I still do this, right? Do I, do I want to be revealed as someone who can no longer do this? And so, and so, you know, having the opportunity to go back and, and to, to connect with her students and to teach her students and to, to talk with them and to kind of really feel like, well, yes, this is something that I still can do. And so, so my thinking about this and my and my teaching at the college level, it's it's enhanced by that. Um, so that's been professionally really beneficial for me. And so well, being, kudos to the university for allowing and supporting this kind of collaboration. I don't know if they know that's what we're doing, but oh, okay. But, but <laughs> I'm sure they would. I'm sure they would be support. I'm yeah. sure they would be supportive because right. I mean, they they want us to to be impacting public good, and I think that's that's what we're doing as best as we can. That's a great statement. I think you're definitely impacting public good. You're putting out more kind, more empowered individuals out there. I mean, they started this. They're recognizing it outside the school walls. Mm-hmm. Who knows what they're going to do next? Who knows? Really wonderful things, I think. But they're lucky to have <laughs> Rachel for, as a teacher because, I mean, this really, I, I, had, I, you know, I had an idea and Rachel provided the space for it. Um, she provided the kids for it. She, she works in a school district, right, that's very supportive oh, yeah. about it. And I couldn't, I couldn't do this work without her. So thank you, Rachel. Well, thank you, Emily, because I have been on this journey with you. And before we decided to create this curriculum, I knew very little about the LGBTQ community or queer theory or LGBTQ text. And as much as I had touted myself as this social justice renegade <laughs> in my classroom, thinking about the things that were absent, there was no representation for LGBTQ uh-huh. youth or LGBTQ characters. And I think in a way I was this phony person. And so from your instruction and from all of your expertise, I was able to really become well-versed in the LGBTQ community, in the language, in the text, Mm -hmm. in the fact that representation was missing in my room, and now I feel that it is present. So thank you. Oh, well, you're welcome. And I'm hoping your teachers feel the same way, you know, as they're imparting Mm -hmm. this and learning this curriculum and and thinking about ways to make it their own. But I hope they, you know, they're feeling the same way, that they feel empowered well, truly, it. there are teachers out there that would not be this brave or maybe the better word, this compassionate to want to change everything for the good of the students. And so, I mean, I know those words are triggers for some that they're like, oh, no, we could never don't want to just deal with it. I don't even want to deal with it. It could be could bring controversy. Could this could happen? That could happen. You fearlessly jumped in. Yeah. And I, I think that speaking about people's hesitancy because of this controversial aspect, most of that does not exist in the fear of parent backlash. I, I really truly believe that most of that hesitancy, for the most part, and this could be a trigger for some, exists in their own misunderstanding or lack of knowledge in a topic. Because it, it can be challenging to, I mean, think about when you get a new curricular unit. Mm-hmm. And you have to teach this yeah. stuff. And a lot of teachers are hesitant to make that change because it's now something foreign to them that they have to implement. And they fear that perhaps they're not going to be successful. And so I think some of that pushback is they don't have the knowledge. And okay. it's hard to find the time to learn how to teach these concepts. And so I'm grateful to Emily for 
creating that opportunity for me to have to jump in and immerse myself into this world. And I'm really grateful for my colleagues who have kind of been thrown into this mix and they too are now on this journey of like understanding. And I still don't have all the answers. And I think that that's important for people to recognize that even when you're working with this new content, as you're learning, you're going to constantly be learning and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to have to come back and inform your students that what I told you was absolutely false. Mm-hmm. And now here's how we should look at this differently. So that's I think a, people have to just get out of their own way sometimes as so, teachers. So that's a brilliant observation, actually. And so now I want to kind of reframe my question from earlier. I asked you your favorite books that you read of, of this topic, but what is an entry-level book or maybe a movie or a TV show that would help people just get um, have understanding? Like, this is where you should start. Wow, that's a tough question. Asking a teacher to narrow it down to one specific book. So the book that launched it for me um, was Boy Meets Boy by David Levithan, which was published in 2003. And that was was sort of the first book that really made me think about what was missing in my own reading. And after that, I started seeking out all kinds of books. So that was for me personally. But I think um, when I started to think about the possibilities of middle grade literature and what that could do and why this would be so important at that age, it was Amy Polonsky's book, Gracefully Grayson, um, which is about a kid named Grayson who is making the moves towards a transition to um, her truer self. And that book is so beautiful. Um, and I thought, you know, this is, a, this is a book that fifth graders and sixth graders and seventh graders and eighth graders can read. I mean, it's been followed by um, Alex Gino's book, George, which was published also for elementary school kids. But there are so many beautiful options. So Boy Meets Boy and then Gracefully Grayson. Those are the two that I'll put out there. Those are great. Great. And I would say for me, and this isn't my personal entryway, but I think it is a way to reach perhaps teachers who are hesitant to put this into their curriculum or readers who may feel uncomfortable with this topic up front uh, for whatever reason would be James Howe's The Mitzvahs, and that was published a while ago. But there is one gay character in the text, which is why we have it in our LGBTQ unit, And the beauty of that character is that they are not the central figure in the text. They're kind of surrounded by these other characters who are also marginalized for whatever reason in their own school. And it's this notion of like all of them have their own individual closets of ways in which they are trying to come out as whatever it is that they're being picked on for. And so I think it's a really nice entryway to kind of give that book to a kid when it's talking about um, characters who are people who may not fit in and why why don't they and and how they kind of come together in order to become allies for one another. And you can have a lot of beautiful, rich conversations using those lenses with a character in there who um, does fit into the LGBTQ strand as gay and there's different representations of other characters who are picked on whether they um, have a different style or they are uh, very outspoken. And so I think it's a really good entry text for that reason. Yeah. And we also need to give a shout, a shout out to uh, Barbara D, who wrote the book Starcrossed, who has been super supportive of us. Yeah, I came across that book maybe at an NCTE 
um, event a couple of years ago. I'm not I'm not sure where I saw that saw that book, and it's a beautiful book. Um, but Barbara has been super supportive of this work, and she's joined us at conferences, and she's yeah, she's been really great. So if you're looking for a really really wonderful book, and it also has amazing Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet in it, um, Barbara D's book Star Crossed is is wonderful, and it's also one of the very few books that addresses bisexuality um, at the middle grade level in a very very thoughtful, sensitive, inclusive way. And the beautiful thing about Barbara D, which we absolutely adore her, is that she's one of those authors that listen to her readers. And so she wrote Star-Crossed. It was published. And in the text, she does not ever use the term bisexuality because in her first writing, she wasn't sure if this is the character who really wanted to give herself um, a name or a term to kind of associate. And my students read that, that current issue and they've thought about it in a very thoughtful way in which yeah, they say... talked about it too, right? Right. Like, and which, why doesn't she ever claim an identity? Well, right, and she's the, not ready to yet. And the beautiful thing is that they've talked about it in the sense of like, she's not ready to yet. And instead of being like, oh, okay, cool, let's just stop there. They're saying, but this illustrates that ideas of sexuality do not have to be concrete. And these are eighth graders talking about sexuality and this representation and knowledge of like sexuality not having to be mm-hmm. concrete is beautiful. Well... Barbara had received letters from readers saying, why don't you ever use this term? Why don't you have the term bisexual or bisexuality in your text? And so with the paperback version, she added that word in there. And it's not used by the character, but it's used by her older sister. And thinking about this notion of the power of words and the the power of having a name for something can be empowering itself. Like she decided to make that shift because of these letters that came in. And so I think that's a testament to authors who listen to their readers and the readers can make this change. And Barbara does that with her texts. Well, yeah, that that makes me think of, uh, you know, you spoke about the vocabulary walls and the, just the vocabulary PSAs your students made and generated. And I thought, man, how powerful would that be? Uh, to educate them on the correct terminologies so they're more sensitive and they can speak eloquently and educated uh, because they're hit with negative vocabulary on these subject matters, especially very hurtful sometimes and aggressive and violent language. Right, and it's fun to watch the kids go, oh, that's what that means. (laughs) And then they start using the language, but they use it thoughtfully and they use it correctly. um, And yeah... They even go out in search of additional terms where they know, I think, more about this topic now than I do even. And they'll say some other term that fits into the LGBTQ asterisk QI kind of connection or collection. And I don't even know what those are. And I have to then like on my Chromebook side research and and they've found articles about these identities that I've never even known. Middle school kids are super smart. They're just super smart. Well, that's the perfect age because they're really, they don't know what's going on inside themselves. They really want to find out and I think it kind of helps them along the way. Mm -hmm. Okay, you're making me so emotional. This is beautiful. The results you've gotten from this, you know, that's, that's awesome. And uh, we've definitely gone over 30 minutes. And I could keep going, <laughs> I'm sure. But thank you for having us. Thank you, us. Josh. No, thank us. you for jumping at the call. And just, uh, oh, you're good at that, right? Just yeah, jumping on board right. like, jumping in. I'll do it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, uh, so, yeah, let's uh, go enjoy the rest of the conference. And uh, thanks for listening. Uh, until next time, take care of yourself, take care of your students, and take care of each other. Bye.